0: to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 we will pick up our reading in verse 15 says see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all rejoice always pray without ceasing in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord. Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, Also, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray <clears throat> as we look at it now that you would speak to our hearts, Lord strengthen us and encourage us for the things in our life that we have need of today. And uh, we look forward to what you're going to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody sad? Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, of course, this brings us to the conclusion of our book, uh, this letter. And we've been looking at it and Paul has been uh, encouraging those who were in Thessalonica. There were some issues that they had. There was a fear that those who had died since Paul had come and they had come to faith in Christ, but then they died that they were afraid that those that were dead had missed out. And what Paul had promised was the coming of the Lord for his church. And so they were concerned. And so You remember, Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica Thessalonica in order to be able to get a report of how the church was doing. And he came back with this report with questions. And so Paul is responding to that. And he tells them that they didn't have anything to worry about, that those who have already died, that when the Lord comes back, that He will gather them all up together. Nobody's going to miss out on that at, at all. And he, twice in this epistle, says, encourage one another with these words. And of course, the encouragement is that uh, also, there's, it's twofold. One, we know that the Lord's coming back, so we're encouraged by that. But then also, too, it encourages us to live in such a way with that expectation of the return of the Lord at any moment. It tells us in First John that John says that who, those that have this hope purify themselves, They purify their lives. They make sure that they're living in such a way that they're being sanctified, set apart for service unto God, being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the written word. This is what Paul was encouraging them to. And of course, as we've been working our way through it, we've been encouraged to that as well. Now, in this last section here, Paul is going to give them some final exhortations, if you will, as to uh, a behavior within their lives and their walk with Christ. As a matter of fact, there are four things that Paul gives exhortation to. And we'll see the first one here in verses 12 through 13. It is the exhortation on how to relate to leadership within the church. And then secondly, it is how to relate to each other in verses 14 and 15. Thirdly, how to relate to God in our walk with Him in verses 16 through 24. And then lastly, we have His closing remarks to us, which uh, are absolutely wonderful. I I can't wait to get there to share a little bit about them. They always uh, excite my heart. So we're going to pick up our section here in verse 12, and take a look at what God has to say. Paul says here, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, I, I have to admit, uh, there's always. Um, Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? This is not something that I particularly like to teach on, to be honest with you. Because it almost sounds like I'm really trying to build myself up and tell you how that you are to respond to me. So if you can remove me out of the picture, and we talk in the general term, it's talking about the leadership in the church. And so you can pick some of the other leaders that are in the church and put them in that place if you would like. But you have to understand... God has set up the church in such a way that there is a responsibility that he gives to men to oversee the flock of God. And with that responsibility, we are encouraged in the word of God to virtually make that job easy for them, submitting to the authority that God has given to them. Now, when we talk about that, you have to understand it doesn't mean that you, just because a pastor or an elder says something that you have to blindly follow what they, what they say. As a matter of fact, we will see in a moment that Paul says, you know what, judge all things. And that's true. You need to look at the word of God. What does the word of God says say? And if that individual is telling you to do something that is contrary to what the word of God is, then don't do it. That's simple enough, right? But if it falls within lines of what God's word says, and especially when it comes to spiritual matters and the direction of the church, then we are encouraged to follow that leading because God has ordained that. You need to understand something. I did not choose for myself to be a pastor, I avoided it, I didn't want to do it. But it was God's choice to put me in this position, and so therefore I do what God has told me to do and what He has called me to do. And I can honestly say that for Pastor Paul, it's the same thing. He didn't choose it. And Ted, who uh, think of him, pray for him, he's come down with another cold, and uh, he's been getting a lot of them lately. So we pray for Teddy, and, uh, but you know, he's an elder in the church, and you know, he's been raised up is that because God has called him to that, and he fills that office. It's Not that we choose these things for ourselves, but God appoints. And so because of that, he says here that to recognize those that labor among you and who are over you in the Lord, and that admonish you, that admonishing is teaching and encouraging and directing in your life. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. In Hebrews 13:7 it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So you need to remember always that the things that we do is for your benefit. It would be a lot easier just to let you run wild like a bunch of crazy people. But, we can't do that. We have to let you know what God's Word says and how you should act and what you should do in your life. Life would be a whole lot simpler if I didn't do anything except for just let you go. It would be. But we cannot do that simply because we love you and we care for you, and so we do that very thing. 1 Peter 2, uh, uh, 5, excuse me, 5, 2 through 4. Tells us the heart of those that are that are leaders and how they are to uh, what they are to do. In verse two, it says, "Shepherd the flock of God." That would be leaders in the church, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So if you take note there, you see there are several things that Peter says to those of us who are shepherding over the flock of God. I don't like that word, but God uses that word, so I'll use that. I would like the word better. Those of you who are sheep dogs amongst the sheep, you know, rather than shepherds, he is the chief shepherd, the one shepherd. I'm just a dog, and I don't mind being that. And he tells us how we are to do it, not because we are forced to, but because we want to, and not to do it for dishonest gain. You know, unfortunately, we see there are many people, many of those who call themselves pastors that are out there, that are in it for everything they can get, you know, what they can... Please the flock of God for? They take advantage for that. And that is so, so forbidden in the Word of God. For those who are men of God, who are teachers of the Word of God, that should not be true. That should not be something that happens. And he tells us why, because uh, we're going to answer to that chief shepherd. That would be Jesus Christ, of course. Verse 14, he says, Uh, and this is where we come to how we are to relate to one another. He says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. So who are those that are unruly? They are those who uh, they are neglectful of duties, and those who are lazy. And Paul tells us here that what needs to happen is to, that there should be an exhortation to those who are doing that to not be that way, to get up off your duff, and especially when it comes to the things of the Lord. And also the faint-hearted, he says here, comfort the faint-hearted. So the faint-hearted, those who are fearful. faint-hearted people tend to become discouraged and despondent more easily than most. They need cheering up, stimulation to press on, and an extra help to live the Christian life. So Paul says that we are to comfort those who are faint-hearted. In other words, to encourage them to come along in their walk of faith and to to get out of that spot of being despondent, to get out of that place of being depressed. And he says that we are to uphold the weak. Uh, The weak need help. And when we say this, this is not a um, derogatory term. These sayings are not a put down. It's simply a statement of facts, really, to be honest with you, that this happens within the body of Christ and how we are to act. Now, <clears throat> this is for all of us. In other words, when, as we act together as Brothers and sisters, we come alongside each other to encourage each other, to strengthen one another, and to enable one another to walk more, uh, to walk better, uh, with the Lord. So, we want to do that as as brothers and sisters, one to another, and those that are weak, these have not learned. Uh, how to lean on the Lord as much as they should for their spiritual needs. Until they do, they need strong support from other believers. Of course, all Christians are weak and need the strength that comes from Christian fellowship. But the spiritually weak need more than most. You know, we're living in an age, a time, where it seems that the, the, the thought The idea that you can be a Christian and not be attached to a church is becoming more and more popular. I just, I have my own relationship with God and, you know, I I worship God, you know, on my own. I don't need the church. Well, all I can say is this, is that it's absolutely wrong, right? Christ came and he died for the church. The church is important. He established the church. And the church has a great place within every believer's life, because as we gather together, we are encouraged. We build one another up as iron sharpens iron. So one man lifts up the countenance of his friend, and you can't do that, separated. And I've said it before, I'll say it again too, the fact is, is for those who have determined that their church now would be found online, you know, all I can say is it is not adequate. Because it's no, it's no better than trying to get warmth from a faux fireplace. You're not, it may look pretty and it may seem like it's good, but the truth is it has no relation at all to a real fire and how you feel the warmth and the heat from that. And there's even more to it than that, to be honest with you, because a fire must be tended or else it will go out. And so it is too with fellowship within the body of Christ. There needs to be that tending, that that building of one another up as we gather together. So for those who have said, you know what, I'm just going to now do church from my home, at best you're missing out. At worst, you're being left out. And so we need to understand that church is critical. It's critical to our, our walk of faith. Right? And that's, for some reason, there's been this drift away from the essentials of praying, reading, fellowship, you know, um, praying, reading, fellowship, prayer, prayer, breaking of bread, and somehow or another that these things are not essential to Christian life. And that is a lie of the devil. I'll just say it like it is. It's a lie of the devil. He said that we are to be patient with all, and this requires nothing short of the love of God produced by the Holy Spirit. We cannot love one another without the love of God within our hearts. We can have some love towards one another. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no love at all. But I got to tell you, God calls us to go much further than just the warm, fuzzy feeling of affection. To genuine love. And he describes that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm just going to read uh, verse 4 here, but there's a whole section that you can go back and look at to get a full definition of what that love is. But in verse 4, he says, love suffers long, is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, and it is not puffed up. And he goes on with more. But here's the thing, it takes the love of God in our hearts being extended to others in order to love in such a way. You can't you can't do it on your own because you will limit yourself uh, in your love. We all do, right? There are certain people we like, there's some we really like, and then there's some we dislike. The ones that you dislike are the ones that you will find that it is the agape love through you and your heart that you will find that you're really experiencing what God calls love within the body of Christ. God, this is what he calls us to. This is what he desires for us, is that we would be patient with all, that we would have that kind of love one for another. Verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. So the opposite of the patience that God calls us to, in long suffering and also uh, being patient with all, is retaliation in some form. Retaliation is not an option for a Christian, even if the wrong done to him is an in, excuse me, is an opposition by a needy brother, or an action springing from an evil intent. The offended one never has the right to repay wrong with wrong. This was a real issue for me in my heart because of the fact that when I was in the world, my motto was real simple. I never get even. I always get plus one. Nobody is ever going to just get even. I'm going to get one more up on you if you get one up on me. But when the word of God tells you that that's absolutely wrong, not only it's like, okay, Lord, I'll let go of the plus one. The Lord says, no, get, let go of the, get even. We have, that's not a Christian lifestyle is getting even with others that have wronged us. As a matter of fact, there are so many scriptures that tell us what to do. I'm only going to pull out a few here. I'm going to encourage you to, when today when you go home, read Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Jesus himself spoke about this, about resisting the um, do, that you not resist the evil person but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn also to him your other cheek. But in Romans 12, 17 through 21, it says, Repay no one, evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So contrary to what the world says, what the world believes. As a matter of fact, those who are in the world would perceive you to be a fool to act in such a way. Of course, you must get even. You must not allow people to step all over you. Well, to be honest with you, we can, because our hope is in Christ, and He is the one that provides everything that we have need of. And if someone is evil to us, we can understand that it is better that God repays than we repay. As a matter of fact, I think God is a lot better at it than what I am. Mine's limited. His is unlimited. And I think He is more than happy for those who refuse to repent, to repay them. In uh, in 1 Peter 3.9, it says that we are not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So our response should be to show kindness in such instances, nor is it enough to abstain from evil. One is also to do positive good, to be kind to each other. Christians are to do this not in the sense that they, will, that they will, if they can, but in the sense that they earnestly work at it. This kind of response takes effort and must be continued. I went from, I'm going to get even plus one, to saying, okay, I won't do that to eventually getting to a place in my heart that I was willing to say, Lord, bless them. Those that treat me wrong, bless them. Because that's what Romans 12 really speaks of. It is the blessing to those who use you and, and speak all manner of evil against you and all this. It isn't that you just say, okay, I just, I'll, I'll forget it. I'll just forget No, it goes beyond that. It is, Lord, bless their life. Bless them with the best that they could have. And the hope is, is that when they, when they have that in their life, that they turn. They, they turn from their way, from their wicked way. Then we come to verse 16. Paul says that we are to rejoice always. God wants His people to be joyful, and He gives them every reason to be. But Paul knew human nature well enough to sense the need for a reminder to rejoice at all times. He also spoke this to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 4 and 4. This is a command. It's not optional. When we see this here, we may think to ourselves, well, you know, that's kind of impossible, so I can't, I can't do that. Well, when God gives us a command, He always makes sure to equip us in order to be able to follow that command. And the Lord does. You see, this command, it's a Christian's Christian's joy, does not spring from our circumstances, but from the blessings that are His because He is in Christ, or that we are in Christ. You know, uh, sometimes it can be difficult. I admit that. But if we're trusting in the Lord and we know that He's in control of our lives, then we can always rejoice. It doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, thank you, God, that I just cut off my finger. You know, that's not what it's talking about. But there's certainly reasons to rejoice in my life when things are not going the way that I want them to go. Because I know that God is going to use it in my life to accomplish the good that He wants to accomplish. And a lot of times I disagree with God in the things that He does in my life. I think I could do it differently and accomplish the same thing, or maybe even better, but God knows best, I can tell you that. I know this, the Christian who remains in sadness and depression really breaks a commandment, this commandment. In some direction or other, he, he or she mistrusts God and His power, His providence and His forgiveness. It really does. It's that simple. And if we can focus on those things, you know, I've talked with people on many occasions who have been dealing with depression, anxiety. And we know this, that the way to come out of that is to focus on God and begin to praise Him and to thank Him even for what you're going through And ask the Lord to lift your spirit up. And he's faithful to do that. I mean, that's how I get through it. That's how I've seen so many others get through it. Sometimes, I think the problem for us sometimes is that we want a quick fix. We think that we should be able to pray that prayer and then that's all done. Okay, everything's fine now. Sometimes it takes a period of time. Many years ago now, praise be to the Lord, I say this my wife went through some very severe depression. And it took years for us working through that, going back to the Word of God, looking to the Word of God, encouraging in the Word of God. But eventually the victory came in her life. And it's through the Word of God, it's through trusting in the Lord, it's through praising Him, it's looking at the truth and applying that into your life. That's how you overcome depression, anxiety, All we have to do is look to Him, and He will lift us up. That's His promise to us. In verse 17, He says that we are to pray without ceasing. Here's another one that seems impossible. It seems impossible, but yet we know that it's not. And verse, um, when it tells us continually praying, that we are to do pray without ceasing continual prayer is not prayer that prevails without any interruption but prayer that continues where whenever possible paul is speaking of maintaining continuous fellowship with god as much as possible in the midst of daily living in which uh, concentration is frequently broken so in other words that what we are living in is that attitude of prayer all day long And I can tell you this, if you don't start your day out that way, you won't end your day that way either. And you certainly won't find that you're in that attitude of prayer from the time you wake up until the time that you go to bed. You need to begin your day that way. I'd encourage you before you even step out of your bed, lift your heart to the Lord. Lord, here I am. I'm going to start my day with you and get up from there and begin praying. And it doesn't mean that you have to go off into a corner and get on your knees and fold your hands and close your eyes. Please don't do that while you're driving. Although I believe some people do, but nonetheless, don't do that when you're driving. Just lift your heart to the Lord. You know, He hears us wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And Paul is saying that we are to pray without ceasing. Some great examples of that. Uh, George Mueller, he says, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk When I lie down and when I rise, and the answers are always coming. If you don't know anything about George Mueller, I encourage you. There's so many, there's biographies, autobiography out there about him. He is truly, uh, he was a man of faith and prayer. In a time of severe depression, in in a depression, in England in the 1800s, he started over 10 orphanages and had thousands of children that he had to care for. And he had, he never, ever did anything to try to raise funds. He just simply prayed. And every time when there was a need, he would pray and God would come through. And there are so many miracles that God did as he would just simply lift his heart before God that it's incredible. But such an example, something for us to look to and to trust in our own lives as well to trust the Lord, that when we pray, that God hears and that He answers. When He says to pray without ceasing, it's not because God just wants to hear your voice. He really wants to hear your heart, and He wants to answer the prayers of your heart. Now when I say that, make sure you understand. I'm not telling you that when you tell the Lord that what you really need is a lot of numbers so that you can get a couple of mil, and He doesn't give them to you. Don't be disappointed. Because you didn't need that money, and that's why He didn't give you the numbers, even though you may think you did. There are other things in our life that are like that, too. We ask the Lord for things, and the Lord doesn't do it, and we get disappointed. and We say, Lord, you know, I really wanted this. I really wanted my wife to be healed. I really wanted my mom to be healed. I wanted my father to be healed. I wanted all these kind of things that we want, not that those prayers are bad or wrong or anything else, but understand this, that God's will is always going to be done. And He does know what's best. And we have to trust in that when we come before the Lord. Prayer is not just simply vocalizing our request, it's believing that He will answer it as He wills, and that we will find satisfaction in that prayer. Somehow, some way, Most of you know my testimony. You know my life. You know the things that have gone on in my life. And if you don't think that I prayed for something different than what happened in those circumstances that were difficult for me, you're wrong. But I can tell you this, God brought me through it, and through that I see His wisdom. I see the things that He's doing. And I may not understand every bit of it now, but I will one day when I'm standing in His presence, I will understand everything that He did in my life and those that I prayed for. We need to just be in that attitude, that heart of prayer. Another example is Smith Wigglesworth. In the, he was in the 1800s. Another saint of God that was just very powerful in his ministry. He says, I don't often spend more than half an hour in prayer at one time, but I never go more than half an hour without praying. So and, it, you know, if you… another one of those, if you read his biography, you'll find that man, he was a powerful man of God. God used him mightily to bring countless number of people into faith, and he was a man of prayer Another example, one that I really like, too, is Corey Ten Boom. She says, When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. And when he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. Pray without ceasing, beloved. That's what God calls us to. In verse 18 he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Christians are to give thanks to God in every circumstance of life. The fact that God works everything together for good to those that love him, according to Romans eight twenty-eight, is the basis for this entreaty. In other words, there are things in my life that I, I didn't say, oh, Lord, thank you that this is happening to me. But I can still give thanks to God. For the, I know that in the midst of that trial, in the midst of what I'm going through, that His promises of He will never leave me nor forsake me are true. He is there with me as I'm going through it. And not only that, that somehow, some way, He's going to work things for good in my life. That even though it may not be a good thing, there's going to be good that's gonna happen in my life out of it. And I'll just say at a minimum, at a minimum, because there are oftentimes so many other things that are so greater, but I would say this as, as a minimum thing, it will be that it will affect me and change me in my relationship with Him. Trials, tribulations are designed that way to where God wants to use them to draw us into a closer relationship with Him. Too many times in a believer's life what they do is that when trials and tribulations come they push away from God and they go off and they try something else in order to try to find a resolve to what they're going through. But the problem is, is that we've missed the whole point. And that's why there are Christians that say, oh, I don't believe Romans eight twenty-eight. How could it possibly be good that this happened in my life and that happened? Well, I can't answer that. Only God can. But I do know this, that if you miss the opportunity to allow God to work uh, on your heart and your life in the midst of those things, you'll never know the answer to that question. You'll never know the answer. God calls us to trust Him, to look to Him, to give thanks in everything, not necessarily for everything, but certainly in everything. These three exhortations in verses 16 through 18 are not just good advice. They are God's will for every Christian. They are not the totality of God's will, but they are a clear and important segment of it. God's will means joy, prayer, and thanksgiving for those who are in Christ Jesus. A little challenge for all of you. You want to know what the will of God is in your life, go get a concordance. And I want you to go through and look up everywhere in Well, you can look in the Bible, but uh, definitely in the New Testament, everywhere that it says the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? That's all you have to do. You look there and you will find it. This we know, this is the will of God in every believer's life. So we can start there, but there are so many other places that are included within that, within the believer's life, that it is the will of God. It is the will of God that you love Him. It's the will of God that you follow Christ with your heart and your life. These things we know that are true. And if we're busy about doing that, all the other things, the particulars that we may be looking for can be found as we continue to pray and to read God's Word and to fellowship with other believers, then we find that the answers to some of those prayers that we lifted up to God, we find they're answered. It's either through the teaching of the Word or maybe through fellowship with a believer, Sometimes it's in our, our own devotional time of prayer and reading of God's Word. When we do that, then we find what God's will is for our lives. And, and safely, we could say that it is this year. And then he says in verse 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. So the obvious thing is that is stated here is that we can quench the Spirit. Otherwise, Paul would not tell us not to do that. The question then must be asked, what does Paul mean when he says, do not quench the Spirit? And how do I quench the Spirit in my life? Well, the word quench means to extinguish by pouring a non-flammable liquid on it, to place something over it to smother it out, or to simply allow it to go out by not giving it more fuel. So any one of those things can be attributed to how we deal with God and His Holy Spirit. And if we feel that we don't sense the Spirit in our life, then we have to look at our life. What are we doing? Are we missing out on any of those things? Are we pouring something into it that is extinguishing it in our life? The thing that I would say is, that is that is, would be sin, pouring sin into our life. That will quench the Spirit When Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, we can look back at what he has already told them to get an understanding of what he may be speaking of. In chapter 1, he reminds them of an effectual working of the Spirit in their lives. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he said, their receiving of the gospel. Even in this chapter, in verse 6, I think it is, Paul reminds them that they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. What what does that mean, Uh, to receive Jesus as your Savior? Well, there are components that are to it that are necessary in order to be able to understand what it means. First of all, in, in order for you to have a Savior, you need to understand that you need one. How do we know that we need a Savior? Well, it's because we have sin in our life. And sin, simply defined, is missing the mark. There's a mark that God has, a mark of perfection with, with no mistakes, and anything less than that is sin. And so the scriptures tell us in Romans 6, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us sin, none of us can escape that. And that would be horrible. It it is horrible, but it would be even more so if God had not done what He did through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now we had the sin problem, and now we need to get rid of it. And the scriptures make it very clear. The way that we do that is by acknowledging that what Christ did on the cross, that sacrifice what he made is sufficient to wipe out my sin and your sin. And so by admitting that and admitting that Jesus rose from the dead, then we're, we're almost there. But now here's the thing that must take place as well. There must be repentance in your heart. You acknowledge your sin, you ask for forgiveness, now you must turn away from it. And now that you've turned away from sin, now you must turn toward God. And that's where faith enters in. Faith, faith is one of those things, it's a term that is used broadly today. But it's specific in this, is that you're placing your hope and your trust and your faith in the One who has come and died for you. Holding on to nothing else other than Jesus Christ. No other belief system, no other other trusting in yourself and your good works, because your good works are not good enough. You'll never be able to erase the sin in your life by trying to outnumber it by good works. Because if you just really are honest with yourself and you take note of it, just in one day the things you do wrong and the things you do right you'll find at the end of the day you're, you're out of balance even then. You have a day one where you have more sin than you had good works. And it's an impossible task. It's no reason to even try, because God has provided that forgiveness of sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except for by Him. No other way. There's a lot of ways that are out there in the world, There's self-help, there's other religions, there's all these different things. But Jesus separates Himself out from everybody else and He declares, I am the only way. And He says, here is how you know that this is true, that I rose from the dead having victory over sin and death. And so when we believe that, we receive that, we confess that, then what we have is salvation. We are now right with God and we can have that relationship with Him. Here we see also, the first, first of all, we see the Spirit working to give them understanding of the word as well, First Thessalonians two thirteen. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in word, uh, as in truth, the word of God, uh, which also effectively works in you who believe We start out really good, but then complacency sets in and we fail to see the importance of God's Word in our lives. We think we can do just fine without a regular time each day in His Word. Even more than that, we have a tendency to forget the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit and as He relates to the Word. We are to pursue God and not to be complacent. We should have the heart of the psalmist that says in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so uh, pants my soul for you, O God. And again in Psalm 63, 8, my soul, I love the old King James in this, this one, my soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. My soul follows hard after thee. When we lose that kind of desire for the word, complacency sets in. Complacency is where we just simply let the fire go out, and next we see the Spirit working to give them understanding in affection and joy, here and also in chapter 1 and verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia. So he tells us here that we are to receive that affliction with joy. Affliction reveals the strengths or weaknesses in our lives, in our relationship with God. When affliction comes to endure it with joy is uh, is to have faith in the Lord and His divine will for our lives. So an example that I can think of is Paul in the book of Acts, when him and Silas are arrested in Philippi. They're arrested, they're beaten, and they're thrown into prison. And it says that while they were there in prison, they began to rejoice and to praise the Lord, and then their shackles dropped off, the gates, uh, there was an earthquake, the prison doors opened, and an opportunity was there for them to leave. Now, I I really, I love that passage because it so relates to us, right, in our lives and how it is, how difficult is it in order, in those times of distress like that, to praise the Lord. But yet, if Paul and Silas had not done that, the gates, the, the doors would have remained closed. The shackles wouldn't have fallen off. But yet, in the midst of that trial, and there's so much to it, I could spend the rest of the morning preaching about it, but I'm not. The fact is, is that God wants us to do that as well. And then um, let's move on. We're going to go on to uh, verse 20 here, where Paul says, Do not despise prophecies. And uh, the word despise there just simply means to despise someone or something on the basis that it is worthless or of no value. So in other words, when it comes to prophecies, don't consider them to have no value because they do. Even today they do. Uh, particularly prediction, the foretelling of future events, including the declarations and exhortations uh, and warnings uttered by the prophets while acting under the divine influence. We're not to despise those things. In verse 21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Christians need to test what they hear and read by comparing it with the Word of God to determine if it is divine in its origin. This is difficult, but it is possible for the spiritual believer to do so. That's all we have to do. When, you know, I I get questions often. They ask me about this person or that person, their teaching and that kind of thing. And I always, first thing I tell them is all you have to do is exercise discernment. Look at it against what the Word of God says. And if it's in the Word, well, okay. But if it's not, then reject it. Be a good Berean. That's what they did. They didn't just take the word of Paul, and you would think, man, if there's anybody that you just need to, whatever he says goes, it would be the apostle Paul. But Paul commended the Bereans for the fact that whatever he told them, they went and they opened up the scrolls, and they checked out what he had to say, making sure that it was of God. And we are encouraged to that same kind of thing. We, each one, have the responsibility to do so. Uh, and that we also can see that, that there are those that have more discernment than others. Acts 7, 11, 17, 11. And these were those that were in Berea that actually did that. Verse 22, then he says to us, abstain uh, from every form of evil. Some things are obvious that are evil. Some things are subtle. I'm not worried about the things that are really obvious to me that are evil. It, that's a that's a no-brainer. It's the things that sneak into my life. I, I like to call them the foxes that get into the vineyard, and they dig around the, the vines and the roots of the vines, and they destroy the vine. And those are the things that trouble me in my own life, It's letting a little bit of compromise come into my life. And, I know you guys probably think I'm just some really weird, radical individual because I don't do this and I don't do that and that kind of thing. But it's because I know a little bit of compromise will cause me to stumble. So as the scriptures say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take a lot of yeast to make a large lump of dough rise up because it penetrates through it all. A little bit of compromise, a little bit of things that are evil but not blatantly evil can be the very thing that can take you down as a Christian because you become comfortable with it and you learn to live with it. And it prevents you from going on and growing. So Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. we've, We've talked about this, even yet this morning about whatever God calls us to do, He will certainly equip us to do. And this is what He tells us here, that when He calls us to these things in our life, He's going to be faithful to complete it in us. He's looking for a willing heart and a willing soul. He's not looking for the perfect man or the perfect woman or the perfect young person. He is looking for someone who says, yes, Lord, I will go. I'll be the one whatever you want. That's what I want. That's all he's looking for. He says, great. He says, now I'm going to equip you in order to be able to do what I have called you to do. When it comes to sanctifying in our life, that daily walking with him, God promises that he will give us everything that we have need of in order to accomplish that. All he's looking for is someone who's willing to get up in the morning and pray and read his word. And not only that, to be able to, to have that heart that loves others. These are things that are essential to just knowing Christ and walking with Him. And He's just looking for the willing soul. That's all there is to it. He will be faithful. And First John 3, 3, it tells us, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We used this verse last week when we were talking about the return of the Lord. When Christ comes back for His church, that anticipation that we have in our heart that He's coming back, and we live in such a way that when He comes back, you know, that day, I don't want to be doing something I shouldn't be doing when the Lord comes back. I want to be ready. I want to be the one that when He comes, man, He's the first one that He sees is me. Boom, here we go. I'm out of here. He'll see us all at the same time, so don't worry about it. I'm not going to beat anybody. It'll be there. And then Paul goes on and he adds these concluding remarks, which are just so valuable. He says, first of all, brethren, pray for us. Paul was all, you know, out there on the mission field still. He's over in Corinth at this time when he wrote this letter. One of the most evil, wicked communities that you could possibly be in. As a matter of fact, if somebody wanted to uh, express that you are a really sinful individual, this is what they would say, oh, you you are a Corinthian. That's what it was. That was the description of a sinful individual. You are a Corinthian. Paul is where Paul was, and he said, hey, pray for me. You know, I can't tell you how much I value your prayers. And I know some of you knew that we were going to be going out witnessing to people, and you were praying for us. And I so want to tell you how important that was to what we did. That's what made it successful was the prayers of the saints that were behind it. And it's so needful. It's needful for what we're getting ready to embark on to reach out into our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is needful that we have praying, praying people within the church that have the heart for those who are lost who need Jesus and praying that God will work. But it doesn't just stop there. We need prayer warriors, but believe me, we need boots on the ground too. We need warriors that are willing to go out and to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ, willing to just simply hand them some information about Jesus And if the Lord opens the door to be able to share with them how they too can have that relationship with Christ. This is the direction we're going, beloved. This is our church. And I hope, I hope that God is ministering to your heart, that you're beginning now even to pray, to pray for us, pray for us as a church, and pray for those that are going to be going on. Then I love this one. Greet one another, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I love it. So when you come to the door today as you're leaving, pucker up. (laughs) Well, you don't have to worry. In this church, we're satisfied with a hug. So Paul, he is exhorting the believers to be affectionate towards one another. Godly affection, but yet affectionate towards one another to love one another in such a way that there's a nearness. You know what? I don't just kiss everybody. And all the guys are going, thank you, Jesus. And a lot of the ladies are going, thank you, Jesus. And that's okay. That's okay. But you know what? Those that I'm close to, I do kiss. Right? And my wife says, thank you, Jesus. And I say, thank you, Jesus. We don't want to miss out on what what God has for us as a family. We want that nearness to one another. There should be open affection towards one another. Now let me set the stage on this one here, because in their day and in their culture, Paul is not telling all the guys to go around kissing girls. It's quite the opposite. He says when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, men were to kiss one another, women kissed one another, because it was much like the handshake. That we have today, or a hug. So we want it to remain pure and to keep it godly. And so we do. Then verse 27, he says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. I guess the unholy brethren don't get it. But at least he says, put it out there and let everybody know. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So we know that this is the end of this epistle, but we'll begin a new epistle in Second Thessalonians. We're going to go on to that. Uh, and it'll be two weeks. Next Sunday, I'll have a special message and it's going to have to do with evangelism and reaching out into our community. And we'll gather together, we'll worship the Lord, and we'll see what God has to say to us. But be preparing ahead of time, reading through Second Thessalonians so you're familiar with it as we come to it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this day. And Lord, we worship you and give you praise. We thank you for your goodness and your love toward us. You demonstrated that love through your Son, Jesus Christ in such a, a powerful way, Lord. And that He, being God, became man, lived a, sinful, a sinless life, and then was crucified for our sin. And He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again, having victory over sin and death. And now offers to us to all of us, to any who will come, the whosoevers that will, that you can have eternal life by simply placing your faith and trust in the Lord and asking Him to forgive you of your sin, come into your heart, and that you will turn from your sin and follow Him. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity And this morning, I want to offer that invitation. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, but yet God has spoken to your heart and you know that's something that you need to do, then I would love to pray with you and lead you through a prayer of faith, trusting Jesus for your Savior. If that's you today, you've never done that and you need that in your life, would you please raise your hand that I can pray with you and lead you through that prayer today?